All right. Well, come on back, please, and grab your Bibles. And uh, we're going to start in Job chapter 20. Here's another announcement I think we should all know. uh, We have a class here called Foundations of the Faith. Here's Here's the packet. So, Foundations of the Faith. We're going to start a new Foundations of the Faith class, new Foundations of the Faith class, June 13th at 9.15 a.m. before church. New believe, uh, it's, not, it's not new believers. I've done this 13 times, no kidding. I think it's 13. Sometimes I get it mixed up. It might be 14, might be 12. But I've gone through this 14-week study 13 times. I'm the pastor, not that I know more than anybody else. I'm just, I study the Bible like you guys study the Bible. And every time I go through it, I learn something. And it's beautiful. And I'm reminded of the things so if you want to be part of the uh, New Believers study, not New Believers, why did I say that? Foundations of the Faith study, then uh, we're going to start that June 13th at uh, 9.15 before church. What an amazing study. Well, turn with me to the book of Job. We've been learning so many things. I gave you these things last week, but I'm going to give them to you again because I just want you to remember. I just started writing down some of the things that we've been learning so far. And here's where you have to start with the book of Job. You have to start in the book of Job with the faulty theology that Job's friends are using, that many used uh, uh, during this time. Oldest book in the Bible, Job's friends use a faulty theology. And here's the theology. Uh, When you do good things because God is perfectly good and mostly because God is perfectly just, when you do good things, a good outcome will happen. Good. When you do bad things, when you sin, there will be consequences of suffering, not just consequences. I said it this way on purpose. There'll be suffering and bad things happen to you as a result of you sinning. And his, and, and the faultiness of this, or the faulty assumption of this, is that suffering is bad. But the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that suffering is bad. When you get in and through the New Testament, suffering is for amazing eternal purposes, and it's not bad. In fact, we're told that if you want to live a godly life, who here wants to live a godly life? Raise your hand. Seriously, if you want to live a godly life, raise your hand. The Bible promises you suffering. Hmm. Where's that on the easy believism track? Hey, come on in. What the deal? You come into a relationship with the Lord and you're into suffering. And yet, we have been learning that there is suffering that are for eternal purposes, and it's not just because somebody sinned. Everybody tracking with me? But Job's friends say, no, all throughout the book, you're hiding something. You're, You're hiding something. But we know, because we read the first couple chapters of Job, He's called upright and blameless. So there is no secret sin. There is nothing hidden in the past that he's not admitting. Now, folks, 
Are there consequences of sin? Of course there are consequences of sin. I always use the one. If I go and drink, lots of drinking, get in my car and say, Lord, help me to not hurt myself or somebody else. Well, come on, folks. I reap what I sow. Of course there's consequences to sin, but sometimes people suffer and it's not because of anything they've sowed. Job proves that. Get it? Everybody seen that? So what... There's so many things that I wrote down that we've been learning. Here's a couple of them. In terms of ministering to the suffering, we can say all the right things, but we can say them incompletely. These guys are saying to Job lots of true stuff, but the problem is they're not listening to his heart. He hasn't sinned. And yet they keep treating him as if he does. So they say true stuff about sin, about hell, about all kinds of things. But they're not listening so that they can connect with Job's heart. And so a lot of times in ministry, we can say right things, but they're not complete things. And we don't connect to a person's heart. So we do more damage than we do good. So it's important to listen when we're ministering. Isn't that true? If you don't think that's true, remember James 1, 19 through 20. We say it every week. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man or woman be really keen or swift or aggressive or good at hearing. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say it, but I'll say it in my way. But could you just close your mouth some? Be slow to speak. Be swift to hear, be slow to speak, and of course be slow to wrath, for the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And sometimes when we're ministering to people, just silence is golden. Just rejoice with those who rejoice. And, you know, you ever been with somebody, folks, you ever been with a person and you have something great that's going on in your life and you just want to get it out? You're just so happy about it. And that person, every time you say, oh yeah, I jumped 10 feet, They go, well, that's really great, but, you know, I can jump 12 feet. That's not rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's one-upping somebody. Here, the Bible just tells us, be happy for others. Rejoice with them when they're rejoicing. But also, listen, just weep with those who weep. You don't have to give them, you you know, all the church, the Nicene Creed and why it was created because they're hurting and crying. No, maybe just hug them and tell them you love them. Right? That's what the Bible says. Of course, as we go through this, we're seeing the whole story of Job is Satan said to God, hey, you know what? If you do this, 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 and this, he'll curse you. God says, I don't think so. No, he won't. Yeah, he'll curse you. So one of the things that we're learning through this entire book is that how do we fall in love more and more with God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit loving the giver and not the gifts? The gifts are great. I love the gifts. You love the gifts. We love the gifts. But what if all the gifts are stripped away? Would you still love the Lord and just his beauty and his holiness? Would you just love him for who he is? Could you be like the Levites? The Levites only get this when they get their inheritance in the land. Oh, you know, coming in line. Okay, Levi's turn. What part of the land do we get? The Lord is your portion. You are a priest. You're part of a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. Can you, is it enough that you just are with the Lord? Okay, we're learning that all throughout Job. 
Well, what else happens through the book of Job? We gain an amazing insight into the sufferings of Christ. Are you catching that? Job's sufferings are a deep insight into Christ's suffering. Remember, Christ's soul sometimes was troubled, John 12. He shrank back from the darkness at the cross in horror, Luke 22. He felt the pain of living in a godless world, Matthew 17, 17. Uh, uh, so, so we see uh, in the sufferings of Job the depths that Christ was going through, uh, the, the depths of suffering. Hey, here's a couple other things. Don't be harsh and accusatory and arrogant. You don't always have to have your own way when you're counseling people, when talking to someone who's in pain. Because, you, you know, when you read the book of Job, he skips around a lot. He says some really faithful stuff, and next sentence he says some pretty not, uh, unfaithful stuff. And then he does this. and the, Why? Because he's in the washing machine or the dryer <laughs> of suffering. He's being tumbled around. So sometimes he's, faith pops through, and sometimes just, woe is me. Of course, people in suffering, that's what happens, right? Here's another one not to miss. Ready for this? Uh, Chris Ash says this in his book, the undeserved suffering of this righteous man, Job, listen to this, the undeserved suffering of Job, this righteous man, foreshadows, uh, of course, uh, the undeserved suffering of Christ, and his undeserved suffering makes possible, listen to this, makes possible the amazing grace of undeserved forgiveness. Whew. In other words, the sufferings of Job are the cost of grace. Wow. Wow. We're learning a lot, folks. We, we also learn that we can't just tell the spiritual state of a person because of they're happy or they're prosperous or they're not. You get that? Just because somebody's happy or not happy, or whatever, prosperous, not prosperous, that doesn't mean their spiritual state is bad or good or anything. Don't make those assumptions. Only God knows the heart. Okay, those are some of the things we're learning. And here we go in Job chapter 20. We're in this second round of back-and-forth dialogue between Job and his friends, his three friends. And you wonder to yourself, don't you wonder when you're doing your one-year Bible, man, or your two-year Bible plan, you're going right in order, you love it, you're so neat and orderly. You just love it. You just go right down the list, and then you get chapter one. Oh, amazing. That's some pretty interesting. Chapter two, great. Chapter three, oh, chapter three is amazing. Then you get into chapter four through all the way through chapter 37, and it seems like the same thing over and over. But you got to remember that all of Scripture is God-breathed or inspired, so that it must, it must, it must have a purpose. And one of the things... I think that's telling you just the fact that you go a long time reading about the same things is never to let suffering become blasé or old hat or just the way that it's going to be in my life and I'm just going to just live it out and not pay attention to it or whatever. See, there's a purpose in the pain. We've been, I gave you them at the beginning, <laughs> some of them that Job teaches us. 
There's a purpose in our pain. You could go into the New Testament. You, you know, this perseverance, it produces stuff, character and faith and hope and love and all those sorts of things. Well, we can be people who become blasé either while we're suffering. I know that sounds funny, but it's like this is just the way it's going to be. I'm just going to live out my life and then pass away. Or we could say, man, what is God doing in my suffering? The Bible tells us that we have a deep fellowship with Christ in suffering. We are partakers of his fellowship in suffering. How could we be blasé about it? Be careful, too, in suffering, either mostly when we're ministering, mostly when we're ministering, But even from the person who's suffering, be careful that our words start to be emptied of its grace. You know, for us who are ministering sometimes, when people don't, quote, I'm I'm putting quote unquote, get it, there's a temptation to like spiritually, not actually physically, but spiritually grab a person by the lapel and say, wake up. We've been going over this over and over again, like Job. But see, that's where life's lived out. That's where, and the Bible says, as we minister to people, we're to be the ultimate in patience with people. For some people, they're going to grow at this rate. For other people, they're going to grow at a different rate. And yet, we need to tell them truth and to spur them on, too. Got it? What does a shepherd do? A shepherd protects and is patient and understands, but wants the sheep to succeed, to get where they're going, right? So there's this combination of patience and spurring them on. Well, let's do it. Let's get into chapter 20. There's this guy named Zophar, the Naamathite. He answers Job after Job has given this amazing burst of faith. In uh, uh, chapter 19, right there in verse 25, you, you know it. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. If you should say, and, and he goes on and he starts to be faithless again. There's this burst of faith and then he becomes, uses faithless words. But, but look, look, this is the oldest book in the Bible, folks. And there's this burst of faith that says, my Redeemer is one that is going to live and is going to see me or I'm going to see him in the flesh on the earth. That's incredible. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of our continuity of life after death and then our resurrection, our glorified resurrected body. And it's a picture of Jesus coming back to rule and reign on the earth. And we'll live with him here in eternity, right? Amazing stuff. Well, he said that, but he's also said some other things back in chapters 18 and 19, or at least, uh, uh, excuse me, eight, uh, 19. He said this, uh, I'll just paraphrase it. Hey, hey, you friends and friend, you, you guys are wrong. <laughs> and he goes on and he gives them some very harsh words. And the reason I'm telling you that, because watch what Zophar says. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, therefore, my anxious thoughts make me answer. 
because of the turmoil within me. I've heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short? Well, that's true in one sense. In one sense, your life is what, 100 years or 70 years? And so, you know, to the Lord, that's nothing. 100 years is nothing. The triumph of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. I'll come back to this. Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heaven and his head, and his head reaches to the clouds, verse 7, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Pretty harsh words, huh? Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly like a, away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. Uh, the eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, verse 14, yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. He swallows down riches, vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He'll suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with the honey or with honey and cream. He will restore that where which he labored, and he will not swallow it down from the proceeds of business. He will get no enjoyment, verse 19 now, for he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He's violently seized a house which he didn't build. Because he knows no quietness in his heart. He will not save anything he desires. Nothing's left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him when he is about to fill his stomach. God will cast him on the fury of his wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. He will flee from the iron weapon. A brown's bow will pierce him through. It's drawn and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terror comes upon him. Verse 26, total darkness is reserved for his treasures. An unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart, and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. Now let's pray. Lord, help us to decipher this, to, to bring your words, to take what the text says and bring, it, bring its meaning out so that we don't impose our meaning on the text. Help us to see what you want us to see here, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Now this is Zophar. Uh, this is his, uh, the, the friend, quote-unquote, of Job. It's his second uh, reply, or his second dialogue, and this is kind of strange. This friend won't participate in the third round of dialogue. This is his last appearance here, and he's really mad. He's insulted, and he's annoyed, and he's angered, and he's frustrated with his friend Job. And so he goes on, and he talks in this chapter about what's going to happen to wicked people. And a lot of it's true, which is interesting. A lot of it's very true. Because he says, life is brief for the wicked, chapters or verses 4 through 11 or so. And that hobbies, pleasure, all of that stuff, uh, earthly stuff, material things, it's temporary. True, right? 
And he says that in the middle of the, the verses, and he also says that death is painful and that you go away. And of course, yeah, I mean, if you fall out of an airplane, folks, for a brief millisecond there, uh, maybe not fall out, but if the plane blows up, no offense, I'm going on a plane here soon, but uh, if it does, it's going to hurt there for that split second, or if you were in a fire, it would hurt, wouldn't it? Or drown, hurt, or some other things. So there is some truth in some of the stuff is saying here. This is the same old argument, though. Catch it here in verse 4. Catch it. Or at verse 4 and verse 5. He's, it's the same old argument. Um, you, you, they're attacking Job's uh, uh, truthfulness, his integrity. He's saying, do you not know this of old since man was placed on the earth? In other words, he's saying everybody knows this. From the time that the earth began, everyone knows this. The triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. This is a backhanded slap at Job. He's saying you're wicked, and your time is short, and you are a real hypocrite. And You might have a little bit of joy to Job, although he didn't, but it isn't going to last. And your pride and your haughtiness it reaches up to the heavens, and God doesn't, uh, isn't fooled by how prideful you are by hiding from us. When we come and confront you, and you won't say you're a sinner, because we know you must be a sin. Look what's happened to your life. You must be a sinner, and you won't say it. You have the ultimate in pride. You won't lower your pride. See, but the problem is what these I guess you could kind of say well-intentioned friends, maybe well-intentioned friends, but maybe not. What these friends are asking Job to do is to blaspheme God. What? Yeah, what they're saying is, if you'll just admit your sin, you're going to start getting the stuff back. Your prosperity will happen. All things are going to come back together, and You'll be fine then with you, yourself, all the suffering gone away, and you'll be fine with God. And what you know and what I know, but now Job doesn't know and his three friends don't know, is that that's exactly what Satan said would happen if everything was stripped away. In other words, the friends are asking them again to speak against God, to blaspheme God, to go against what God said, that I want this man and all men to love me just for me. Boy, is that convicting? Folks, is that convicting? What do you do when you pray? Here's what you do. I know what you do because I have it right here. It's in my prayer journal. Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this, and and I'd like you to get it done by Tuesday. Is that okay? Could you get that done by Tuesday? I mean, that's how we pray. Come on, folks. That's how we pray. And so you keep going here. It's just all over the place. Wicked don't prosper. You turn it over, or at least in my Bible. Uh, uh, this uh, disappearance, you know, the eye that saw him will see him no more. There's this disappearance for the fate of the wicked, right? They'll just, uh, uh, their children will need them because they're going to go away and uh, they're going to go away fast and. Uh, 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 punishment in verses 12 through 18 of the wicked is certain. They're going to do evil like you're doing, Joe, and it's sweet in your mouth. This is kind of true stuff. The Bible says that the, sin is pleasurable for a time, but it leads unto death. And here they say evil is sweet in, your, in his mouth, the person who's wicked, and he hides it. And then he, after he eats it down and he, 
He swallows and digested. It says he vomits them up again, and God casts them out of his belly. By the way, many people believe this is a commentary uh, on uh, what it's going to be like in hell. See, these are true things. They just don't happen to be applicable right now to Job. And one of the things that may mark hell, listen to this, Uh, uh, where all evil enjoyed, (laughs) all evil enjoyed, all sin enjoyed is turned into endless nausea. Hmm, isn't that fascinating? A comment on what it might or what it's going to be like uh, in hell, some people say. And you could keep going through here. You could keep going through. It's the same old story. Uh, he sees Job's suffering as, his, as proof that his evil has been brought to light. And he goes down. What a friend. He, 21, nothing is left for him to be. His well-being won't last. He's self-sufficient, and it's caused him to be in distress. Every hand of misery is going to come against him. And the fate of the wicked, God's going to cast him out in fury, and you see it, right? It's just the same old stuff. And here comes Job in response in verse, excuse me, in chapter 21. He initially starts out in a calmer tone, so Job answered his friend here. Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. If you won't come for me, in other words, could you just stop talking for a minute? He said this before. Bear with me, because I want to tell you these things. We want to speak, and after I've spoken, keep mocking. In other words, I know you're going to keep doing it, but just let me get my words out. As for me, is my complaint against man? No, because what? He's got questions for God. And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even uh, when I remember I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. In other words, what I'm about to say is really terrifying. Why? Here it comes. Here comes the question. Here comes the question of the ages. People say this today in suffering, right? By the way, just rabbit trail here for a second. Let's just take a little time out. And let's say we're talking about these things in intellectual ways, and yet I want you to know that we're very sympathetic and empathetic and compassionate towards people who are suffering. We're not just saying, here, pat you on the head and have a nice week. No, we want to sit with them and cry with them and help them and take them to the grocery store or go to the grocery store. So that's my parenthesis. Even though we're speaking of this as we're reading through the Bible, I want you to know that what we are saying is we want to love them through these times. We want to sit with them from chapter 4 to chapter 37. We want to be with them from chapter 4 to 37. We want to text them. We want to write them. We want to call them. We want to give them a hug. We want to do things for them. Okay, that's my parentheses, because I don't want it to make it seem like we're just saying, get over this, Job. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying that this is an amazing picture of Christ's sufferings, and we are called to suffering, and that brings us into a deeper fellowship with God. I was with a person this week who is suffering, and uh, he is a really mature Christian, at least I would think. I would call him, you know, just a mentor. He's a a great guy, and he is suffering right now. He's got some things in his life where he's suffering. And one of the things he said to me is, you know, you find out an amazing amount about God, but you also find out an amazing 
amount about who you are in God. And you recognize this guy being a pastor and a people who ministers. You recognize that your self-sufficiency can sometimes get in the way. And when you're in a place of suffering, you recognize that you only need Jesus. And that some, there's many things inside your life that are still ugly and gross and that need purified and refined. Whew, wow. That's more powerful coming from him than it is from me because he's going through it, right? Well, Job keeps commenting, and he says to his friend, as for me, verse 4, 21, chapter 21, is my complaint against man. We read that. Look at me, verse 5, and be astonished. Put your hand. I'm terrified. Trembling takes hold of me. And here's the question I need to ask. Everybody asks, why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Why do the wicked live and become old? See, he's asking that back to his friends because watch this. If that's a real observation, and it is, you know it, right? You see it all the time. You say, God, I'm doing godly stuff. How come they have, like, you know, that house and that car, and I'm doing godly stuff, and why, why am I not getting ahead? And why do I have this malady, and they don't have that malady? And why did this person break up with me? But that person's married and happy and all that sort of thing. We keep asking it. But here's what Job is saying. Listen to this. Why do the wicked live and become old? And he's pointing it back at that faulty theology. In other words, this destroys all his friend's theology. If people are wicked, live longer, and become older and mighty in power, then their theology is wrong. God's perfectly just. Every time you see something bad in somebody's life, it's because there's hidden sin. Well, not if people are wicked or living and old, and they're still wicked. Do you get what I'm saying? Everybody tracking with that? Their descendants are established. Their offspring before their eyes. Everybody asks this question, right? Why do the wicked have stuff and I don't? And their offspring before their eyes there in verse 8. 9, their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without fair, failure. Their cow, calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock. Their children dance. They sing to the tambourine. Harp. This is the perfect Instagram life. This is Martha Stewart. This is, this is Joanna Gaines and Chip Gaines and everybody lives it and they, we just put it on Instagram and our family is perfect and, and they don't follow the Lord. They don't go to church. Not Jan, Joanna Gaines and Chip Gaines, but you get what I'm saying. That's, we pick people out like that and we say, why not? They say to God, depart from us, verse 14, for we don't desire the knowledge of your ways. We don't even want to talk to you about what, what you want to talk about. Who is the almighty? We don't want to talk to you about God. Our lives are good. Folks, this is 2021. This is it. Go out on the street corner and try to witness downtown. There's going to people say, why do I need God? My life's going great. Now, they have to understand that might be true materially, but we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. People ask this stuff, though, folks. Verse 16, indeed, their prosperity is not in their hands. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often, verse 17, is the lamp of the wicked put out? In other words, not always are wicked sent punishment or justice now. That's the key word. Write it in your Bible. Not always are the wicked sent justice or punishment or any sort of bad stuff now 
How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows of God distributes in his anger. They're like straw before the wind and like chafe or chaff that a storm carries away. They say God lays up one's iniquity uh, for his children. Let him recompense him that may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? You see, he's just going on and on and on about how the wicked seem to be doing good and are doing good. And he looks around and he has experience and he says, you folks are wrong because I see wicked people prospering, living long, having great children, etc., or having great home lives. 22, can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His perils are full of milk, and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They, da- lay- they lie down alike in the dust, and worms cover them. In other words, the death of the wicked and the death of the righteous, it's no different than the death of any other man. They're all the same. We're all physically going to die. And that's another observation he makes. We're all going to die. They're all going to come, and they're going to, unless the Lord comes first, we know in the rapture, we're going to die physically. And he says here in verse 27, look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you could wrong me. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're trying to say. I know what you're scheming against me. Verse 28, for you say, where is the house of the prince? He's talking about himself. Look at this. He goes, I know what you're thinking. I've said this back to you, and you're going, yeah, right. You had the biggest house in the block. You, had the, you were the greatest man in the east, and you have nothing now. This can't be for no reason, his friends think. Where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent? And he's saying, look at that, because if you knew what was really going on in my life, no hidden sin, you'd know that this is proof that you're wrong. Do you see how that goes back and forth? This would be proof that you're wrong because I've done nothing wrong. I've been a sacrificial person. I've kept short accounts with God. So it can't be your theology. 29, have you not asked those who travel the road? He goes, hey, ask other people from other places. Just don't rely on me. Don't you know their signs for the wicked are reserved for the day of doom? They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Just ask around who condemns his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done. The wicked go unpunished. You see how he just keeps going back and forth, going back and forth, going back and forth. He's in the washing machine. He's in the dryer. Yet, verse 32, he shall be brought to the grave and a vigil kept over the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him as countless have gone before him. How then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? You're wrong. This is the end of the second debate, and you're wrong. Only in the end will the heart be revealed, and you folks are wrong. Here he comes, another friend. This is round three. Only two of Job's three friends speak in round three, Eliphaz and Bildad. Again, they accuse Job of wrong motives, invent false charges, and result to insults. You say, man, could you just get this over with? This part, it just keeps happening. 
I wanted to, man, I, I, every time I'm reading through this, I'm thinking to myself, man, do I pound people like this? Oh my goodness, what a drag. Do I get half of my, the, you, know, the, you know, square on theology, rigid theology, and just try to fit it into their situation, even if not all of it will fit under there? And am I hammering people? And do I continue to hammer people? And I, am I listening? Am I being tender towards people? Am I, am, I, am I being patient with people? Do I think I'm a know-it-all? You, you, folks, because there are people in the church who have a very rigid theology, and they want you to know that they know a lot and they miss out on the more tender things of love. And the Bible tells us, starting with me, that we're to be both truthful and loving. We're to be loving and truthful. We're to be truthful and loving. But we see most people can be one or the other, and the Lord was the perfect blend of both. He was full of grace and truth. So we need more of the Lord to minister to people, don't we? Well, here, we're going to go through this, and we're going to then get to the place in chapter 23 that's going to blow our socks off. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, verse 2, Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? (laughs) If you break this down, this is really rotten. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous, or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless. Do you really think you're uh, uh, defending God's honor by saying you're righteous when in fact you're not righteous? Can you believe this? Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Uh, because it, actually the word fear of him, that means piety, your piety. Is it because of your piety of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? I mean, this is really mocking language, folks. Is not your wickedness great? There, he strips off the sarcasm or the mocking, and he just goes right full throttle. Isn't your wickedness great? In fact, he's going to invent charges against Job, and your iniquity without end, for you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason. Well, that's not true. You, you get that, right? He's not taking pledges from anyone. He, say, he was uh, upright and blameless. You've taken pledges, uh, pledges, verse 6, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've not given the weary water to drink, and you've withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. You've sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden fear troubles you, or darkness, so that you cannot see. You know, we see what rigid theology does. You see this, folks? It attacks. It somehow slips over from compassion and sitting there for seven days on the dunghill with your friend just trying to comfort you. And when your friend doesn't believe what you believe in the way that you believe it, here comes the attack. Not just attack, trumped up indictments or charges against your friend. Folks, I think of people who've done that to me, but then I've also thought, my goodness, maybe I've, I've done that to people myself. How about this? And an abundance of water covers you. Verse 12, is not God in the height of heaven? Uh, And see uh, the highest stars, how lofty they are. And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so they cannot see. You think he's far removed and he walks above the circle of heaven. Will you keep to the old way? 
uh, which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood. I don't know if you catch what they're saying there. They're saying we're way closer to God than you are. (laughs) You ever met people like this? Have you ever done this yourself? It's really gross. It's really unbecoming. Here, they're saying, wow, you, you won't admit it. I, okay, I see. It, the heavens to you, in between you and the heavens, there's a real lot of clouds. You can't see it clearly like I can see it. <laughs> Boy, what a, what a, um, a warning against uh, not being circumspect before you go and minister to people, not being tender before you go and minister to people. Well, you keep going here in verse 17. They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to us? By the way, this is a repeating of uh, Job's word earlier in one of his uh, talks to his friend. In other words, he's mocking him now. You know, like a kid when you, he, your friend says stuff and you repeat everything your friend says, so they, you know, bup, 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 right? And you do that and you're mocking them. So these, look, look what rigid legalistic theology does. You, you trump up charges. You don't understand uh, 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 how all of your theology can quite encompass all the stuff that's going on in somebody's life. So charges come, uh, r- rigidness comes, uh, uh, cruelty comes, mocking comes, because you get angry that the person's not acting the way you think they should. Isn't that interesting? So there's mocking here. And he filled their houses, verse 18, with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Well, 19 through 30 then is just this thing where he brings up the same old argument. It just continues. The righteous see it and are glad and the innocent laugh. Surely our adversaries are cut down and the fire consumes their remnant. Now watch this, watch this, circle this one. Don't tune out. Verse 21, now here it comes. Look at this. (laughs) Don't you want to do this in your life? Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. And it's really subtle there. Folks, this is the gospel that you turn TV on and they're trying to sell to you. If you become acquainted with religious stuff and you confess some things, you're going to get a thousand bucks. You give us a hundred bucks, you'll get a thousand bucks guaranteed. And you're going to be at peace with yourself because you've given to the Lord. And there is that element to it, but there's also a good element to it. If you do acquaint yourself with the Lord, if you come to that place where you love the giver and not the gifts, guess what? You will be in peace in here. Because the Bible says, those whose mind are stayed on him will be in perfect peace. So there's this interesting thing where the friend says, now acquaint yourself with him. And be at peace. Therefore, good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth. Obey and lay up his words in your heart. Of course, that sounds good. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. Of course. See, this is kind of what we do when we share with people. You know what we do when we share with people a lot? Man, if you'll just come to Jesus, your life will be better. You ever said that? I've said that, and I've been wrong. No, you need to come to Jesus not because your life is to be better. You need to come to Jesus because you have a penalty against you, the wrath of God that you can't repay by yourself. And you need a Savior, and I need a Savior, and we need a Savior. 
And when we come to Jesus and give up our own life for his, perfect peace does follow. And building up does follow. And putting back together does follow. And of course, removing iniquity does happen. It says here, then you will lay your, verse 24, your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brook. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Almighty. And that is good. Isn't that what we're after? Aren't we after the presence of the Lord? Don't we want the presence of the Lord? That's what the Israelites want. They, cloud, fire, cloud by day, fire by night. What would they do? They wouldn't move unless the presence moved. We're not going anywhere if, we, if it doesn't mean God's presence. That's what the Israelites said. That's what we say. That's what we're after. See, here's the thing. Your hearts, our hearts think, oh my gosh, my marriage is failing. I better go talk to the preacher. Well, I'm sad your marriage is failing. I don't want your marriage to fail. But you've got a bigger problem than your marriage is failing, and that's you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell. And so we need to get that right first. We all need to get that right first. We need to get that place where by the blood of Jesus, our sins are paid for. They were removed as far as the east is from the west, and he doesn't count them no more or anymore. And now we can come into the presence of the Lord by the blood of the Son. And what happens in the presence of the Lord? Healing and restoration. But we have a problem first. That's we're sinners. Now you keep going on. Almost done. Hang in there. Because here comes the punchline and the best part. Or I don't know about the best part, but here it comes. Verse 27, you'll make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows and you will also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. When they cast you down and you say exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. He'll even deliver the one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. And all this sounds wonderful and great. But Job comes back and answers and said, even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. And here it comes. Here it is. Here's the punchline. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Remember, this is the oldest book in the Bible. He doesn't have a lot of theological training. He couldn't read Romans. He didn't read the Gospels. He didn't know that, but he says, in this flash of faith, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Saying, why are you getting so excited about that? Because here we see in the oldest book of the Bible, when this guy who's suffering with everything's stripped away, there's something, this, this deep cry of the heart that he knows there's a God. Oh, if I just knew, if I knew where I might find him, if I could just know that, the fact that there is a God and that he could be present and that he's just and I could know about the justice of God, really about the justice of God. Why do I say that? Because he says that I might come to his seat. That's a judicial word. Now remember, we've been saying this. G. Campbell Morgan brings up this amazing fact, and here's the fact. When Job, many times when these cries of the heart, and this one's deep from within, if I just knew where I could find him. When these cries of the heart arise, we find in Jesus the answers. 
Do me a favor and turn with me to uh, John 14. Go back there. Go to John 14. Remember, we're answering the question for Job, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Job 14. Let's start in verse 7. Everybody follow along with me. Remember, we're answering the question, where can I find him? Jesus said in John 14, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, I want you to circle this. Philip. Philip, or hold it there. There's, I think there's four Philips in the Bible. This is Philip, the uh, disciple, one of the twelve, who was one of the first to come to him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. It's sufficient for us. Can you say that? Lord, just if I just have you. The relationship, okay. That job, okay. That education, fine. But if I just have you. And Jesus said to him back, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The, the, the words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, uh, uh, but uh, the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works of himself. Job says, oh, that I knew where I might find him. All those years go by. We get into the New Testament, and Philip says, show me the Father. And he says, this is important. This is important, folks. Jesus says, hey, Philip, have I not been with you, or have I been with you so long? I don't think that's, he's, he's mad at Philip there. He's saying, remember back what we've been doing for the last couple years, Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So let's look at a couple of things Philip's done. Go to John 1. Go to John 1. Look in verse 43. This is, you know this, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. We have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law. We found the Messiah. Listen, John 14, 8, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. And then what did Jesus tell Philip? Listen, remember what I've been doing for the last two years. The first thing, Philip, we did together is I said, come follow me. And you remembered that I was the one that was written of in, by Moses. I'm the one who has prophesied. The one, the great prophet, the one who would come and to save his nation and the world from their sins. Okay, let's go into another place in John. Go to John 6, verse 7. Oh, wait a minute. We'll go to verse 4. Now, John 6, verse 4. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. Every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a young guy here who has five loaves and two fish. And what are they among him? And you know the rest of the story. Remember, remember, Philip, if you just show me, tell me who, you know, who, tell us about the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he says, remember back, Philip. Remember, I said, come and follow me. You knew I was predicted in the scriptures. You knew, Philip, that I was the one who had compassion on a crowd after I'd been ministering for all these uh, uh, hours. I've fed the crowd. Keep going with me. Just a few more minutes. John 12, verse 20. Go there. John 12, verse 20. We're examining, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said to Philip. And he said, remember back and recount the things that you went through me that reveal the Father. We've gone through two. Here's the third. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered and said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in the world will keep it. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. This was, uh, this was a couple years or a year before. There's going to be real sorrow Jesus said, are you catching this? And yet, I'm going to follow it through. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here's another one. John, well, we've read it. Uh, uh, John 14, 8. If, uh, don't you know me, Philip? He has seen me. You've seen the Father. Uh, this is the explanation point of who God is. Are you catching this? Here, here, let me try to explain it this way. I'm not doing a very good job, quite frankly. Here come the disciples on a linear line. A line. Just think of a line going this way. It's what the disciples did for that three-year period. This one disciple named Philip says, hey, if you just show me the Father. Well, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now remember back to the things that we've been through. I asked you to follow me. I asked you to come and follow me. I mean, think of how... uh, uh, if, if he wasn't the Messiah, how presumptuous, how arrogant, how weird that would be. You would come follow me and learn from me, but I'm the one that's predicted in the scriptures. Now watch, here comes the line, but now take a, one of those, I don't know, what do you use in math? I don't know. Uh, what do you use? One of those protractor. Take a protractor, and at that point in the life of Philip, draw it right up to the father. Boom. And then the next thing, where can we get food? And he comes, and listen, he's been ministering, and he has compassion on the crowd, and he can turn nothing into something and feed people on a big basis. Now take the protractor and go right up to the heavens. He 
No, you know this. Uh, there's this place called the Upper Room, and just a few hours before he's about ready to die, he takes all of his disciples in there, including Philip, and he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get down on my feet, or down on my knees, and I'm going to wash your feet. And you take a protractor, and you go right to the heavens. And there's lepers that nobody would touch, he would touch. There's ladies that nobody would uh, uh, associate with because they'd had five, five husbands and there was another one living and she was in sin. And, and you take those, all those incidents and you, go, you take the protractor or whatever, the ruler, and you just go, foom, foom, foom. <laughs> My watch is going off because of low battery. Are you, are you catching what I'm trying to say? There was this unsettled thing in Job's heart. He knew he could make it if there was purpose in the suffering. If only he knew God and he could actually see him and be with him and touch him and, and know. That's what he was saying. And that's what lots of us say. Lord, if you're real, why do the wicked prosper? Maybe, but if I knew there was purpose in the pain. If I knew I was going to meet you, if I knew you were real, people say, then I could thrive and make it. Job asked this question all along, and he screams out, and not only is he saying real stuff that's happening to him, if I could just see you, Lord, listen, the Lord listened and sent his son Jesus so that we could see. And all of the things that he did in his life were pictures of heaven. That's who we serve. And when you read this, the oldest book of the Bible, as we close, the oldest book of the Bible, I say this a lot, and I'm sorry to repeat it, but it's worth saying again. When you recognize that God had all of this planned out from the beginning to the end, all the questions of men and women in their rawest, deepest sufferings. All the unsettled anxieties of a person's heart, when they come out in the questions of Job, they're all answered in Jesus. Oh my. That means something, folks. <laughs> Here's what it means. You are important to God. You matter. He planned it out which means we need to tell our teens, our young people, yes, it's great to have fun at youth group and do fun stuff, but they need to know that Jesus loves them like this. We need to know that Jesus loves us like this. Let's pray. Well, Lord, <laughs> what an amazing piece of scripture. Who? The cry of our hearts is to see you and to know you. Lord, we're so thankful that you sent your son. It's a historically documented fact. It's not a figment of our imagination. You died and you rose again and you appeared to all those witnesses and all they had to do was deny you and live and they all died. Wow. You're more real than anything, Lord. And we're so glad that you've chosen us and we've responded to your choosing, your call. 
And Lord, we pray for those ones in the back in the church here. We pray that these things would be knit in their hearts. And oh, by the way, we pray that they would be knit in our hearts so that we could face tomorrow and every day and live victoriously by your spirit and power and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.